Okay. Welcome everyone to Green Channel College. Um, it's nice to see so many faces at the end of eighth week, well, the beginning of ninth week, in fact. So the students in the room who aren't too exhausted, um, I hope you enjoy. <laughs> I hope you enjoy the day. I think everyone's a little bit exhausted this time of the year. So 2016 marks the 50th anniversary of the Oxford Centre for Criminology. And the Faculty of Law, uh, along with the Centre, put together a rather exciting series of different events and activities throughout this calendar year. So it goes across two different academic years. And this is one of those events. And these activities are really about both sort of celebrating the last 50 years of criminology in Oxford, looking forward to the next 50 years. I don't think we'll be around for all of those, but at least hopefully some of them. And to really... Uh, celebrate and pause and think about where we are now, what we are now. Um, so uh, this event is very generously funded by Green Templeton College and co-hosted with the college. And um, I want to explain a little bit why that would be. Um, Green Templeton College, I've been a governing body fellow here since 2000, when it was still called Green College. And uh, over that time, its focus on human welfare has developed quite considerably. It has now this annual human welfare conference, it has a human welfare journal and a blog. And a lot of its academic activity among its students and its faculty are very much connected with trying to have an impact in the real world, have an impact on practitioners, have an impact on policymakers. And... Uh, and on research in all different disciplines, but with a very broad focus on human welfare, on really making things better for people who are perhaps in more disadvantaged positions than many of us in this room. Um, and Oxford Criminology too has an interest in human welfare, again, variously defined. Um, and so it's perhaps not surprising that many of our students choose to come here to Green Templeton College. And in the last 15 years only, we've had almost 50 students members of this college and, and for that I'm very pleased and very proud and some of them are in this room today and some of them will be speaking in the various different sessions today. So Oxford Criminology, why celebrate 50 years in 2016? It was possible to study criminology here in Oxford uh, before 50 years ago. Uh, in fact my uh, father-in-law is very keen to tell me that he studied criminology uh, as a law student at Exeter College here over 60 years ago. And he was taught then by Dr Max Grunhut, who was the first reader in criminology. But the reason why we mark our 50th anniversary this year is because 50 years ago, um, Max Grunhut's um, successor, Dr Nigel Walker, who unfortunately passed away at the ripe old age of about 93 just a year ago, uh, he set up what, uh, a, a unit that was called the Penal Research Unit, and he set that up in uh, 1966. So that's where we mark the 50th anniversary from, because that was the first time we had a centre devoted to criminological research and teaching. It was renamed the Centre for Criminological Research in 1973, when uh, then Dr Roger Hood, now Professor Roger Hood, uh, took over as the reader in criminology and set up a, a, the centre just around the corner on Bevington Road. It became a department of the university, of the law faculty, sorry, in, in 1991. Um, and then we moved in 2004 to our current premises in the Manor Road building, which is the social sciences uh, divisional building. 
Um, now, until the start of the new millennium, Oxford criminology was focused very much on its research. So uh, we were striving for excellence in academic research that also reached out and influenced policy and practice. And we had at the time, and we remain, to have very good relationships with various different public and, and private and third sector bodies who work in the area of criminal, criminology and criminal justice and did research on victimisation, on prisons, on probation, on parole, on the death penalty, on crime in the family and latterly very important work on border control and the detention of refugees and asylum seekers of which you will hear more later. So at the same time in 2001 we established our MSc in Criminology and Criminal Justice And this coincided with a change of our name to the Centre for Criminology to to really reflect that shift in in emphasis, not away from research, but onto teaching as well as research and striving for the same excellence in our teaching as we think we strive for in our research. Um, So we have now come... To, 19, uh, to, to, 1996, to 2016, and we think we uh, feel very proud to celebrate uh, 50 years of excellence, both teaching and research. Uh, we don't want to rest on our laurels. Uh, we have, with the law faculty, developed a development prospectus, which you'll find probably in the packs given to you. And this is very much about celebrating where we are now, but looking forward to the next 50 years. And we're embarking on a very ambitious fundraising campaign to secure our continued success over the next 50 years and to secure um, a global criminal justice research hub, which uh, will encompass various different ambitions around a new post, new studentships, particularly studentships for students who would not otherwise be able to come and study at Oxford. So if you have friends or colleagues with very deep pockets, you might want to leave that prospectus lying around on their desk and maybe buy them a drink at the same time. So um, this conference, why this conference? Well, I mentioned before the emphasis on human welfare in Green Templeton College and, and our own interests in this field too. So this conference is really aimed at trying to understand and appreciate the lived experiences of people who are considered to be vulnerable or not having their due rights in the criminal justice system. And so it draws together a range of experts from criminology, from psychiatry, from law and from the third sector with enormous expertise in in a range of areas that speak to these issues of trauma and vulnerability and issues around mental health in criminal justice. Um, So the day will start with a plenary session and it will end with a plenary session. And in the middle, we'll have uh, panel sessions that really bring together what we might call early career researchers working this area with strong links to Oxford Criminology and uh, many of them to Green Templeton College too, talking on various different topics around vulnerability, trauma, resilience of of people in prisons, uh, people uh, on immigration detention, in immigration detention centres, at risk of offending, people with autism, etc. And you will have before you a very interesting and exciting day. And what we're doing is really trying to look at the enduring aspects of trauma and, and mental health problems, but not to sort of lay out a, a litany of misery, rather to try to better understand, to better explain experiences of people in these situations and, and really to look forward to, to what improvements might be made to the criminal justice system. Um, so uh, before I introduce our first plenary si- uh, speaker, I just want to give you a couple of uh, very tedious housekeeping points, tedious but useful. You might have seen as you came down the stairs to come into the lecture theatre there, just behind you there's toilets. 
So on the right as you go out is the gents, on the left is the ladies. Um, when we break for coffee and also for lunch, which we'll have a coffee break this morning and a coffee break this afternoon as well as lunch, uh, you will go to the stables bar for refreshments. And it's basically, as you come out of the uh, top of the lecture theatre building, you go straight across the grass into the doors ahead of you. Some Oxford colleges, you're not allowed to walk on the grass and people will come out and shoot you or there will be landmines hidden among the grass. Oxford, uh, Green Templeton College is a little bit more laid back, so you can walk round if you feel nervous or if you have high heels, <laughs> but I think you're safe to go across. Um, if you don't know where you're going, then just, just follow the crowd. They'll almost certainly go. I've not been given any advice to what to do if there's a firearm, so I suggest you scream and run. Um, but there's probably a procedure that I should tell you. Is it, is it over there? It's probably meat outside on the grass. Um, and the only thing, other thing to say is when you're going out, if you could just, um, we can make as much noise as we like in this lecture theatre, but as you go out of this building, if you could be a little bit quiet because you will pass on the right uh, as, you, as you leave the building, the library and um, students are preparing for exams and, and <coughs> assessments at the moment. So maybe we could respect um, their need for a bit of peace and quiet. But as soon as you get in the stables, be as noisy as you like. So... Our first plenary session, uh, speaker, we're delighted to welcome Sarah Brennan. She's the Chief Executive of Young Minds. This is a national charity that promotes emotional well-being and mental health for children and young people. Uh, and I think she's been there since 2008, so she has a vast amount of experience to draw on. Experience of really championing the, championing the cause of young people. Um, she promotes their, their, their talents, their services, advises government and ministers about the mental health needs of children and young people, and is the member of various different fora and, and task forces aimed at making vulnerable young people's lives a little bit better. So, uh, Sarah, I would like to invite you to the podium, and I think everything is set up there. No. Thank you very much. <coughs> Hello, um, it's great to be here and uh, thank you Caroline for inviting me. Um, it's interesting coming to a completely new environment um, because you don't know who your audience is going to be. So um, I'd just be interested to know a little bit about you, just heard a little bit about me. Um, how many of you are connected to the university and to the school? So, put, so quite, a, quite a lot of you. And are you, um, how many of you are MSE students or postgrads? All right, also a few. And are there people who work within the criminal justice system here? No, we're talking... Oh, one little hand. Oh, a couple of hands. People are getting brave enough to put their hands up. And what about in the mental health system? Are there people here from... Um, one, oh, a couple of hands going up there about that as well. Brilliant. OK, well, thank you very much. It's just quite nice to know. And I hope that um, what I've got here for you is going to be interesting and hopefully a little bit different. I've got to just take a little that off. Um, so what I'm going to do is a, a quick scope through. I'll tell you a little bit about Young Minds and then a scope through the policy development 
um, uh, that's happened over the last 10 years and where, we're, where it's all kind of going. Um, and then much more recently, where, where we're at and what the opportunities are, um, what the risks are, and, um, and what we'd like from you, really. Um, especially, I think, uh, as you're coming through the, the university and about to go out there, we need your energy and we need your knowledge and brains, and um, I can't make this move on. Yes, so here we are. So, Young Minds, first of all, um, as Carolyn said, uh, we are leading charity committed to improving the emotional well-being and mental health of children and young people. Uh, what we do, though, very much is focus on young people's experience. There are lots of academics in the world. There's the other organisations that are very focused on research. Um, uh, what we wanted to bring in was, well, actually, what's the impact on young people and families? Uh, what are they saying about what their experience is of mental health? Um, and what's our, what's our platform, in a way, of our credibility? And it's very much about what young people are saying their lives are like, what they're saying about their experience of services, what they're saying helps, and similarly about families and parents in particular who are generally, not always, but generally the main advocates for uh, their children in terms of trying to get help for them. And with that experience, so we are very much driven by young people and they are involved in every element of what we do, um, but in particular around our campaigns and our, our policy asks, it's very much driven by young people themselves. So what's our, our vision? So where are we trying to get to here? Um, what is it that, that keeps us on the road? So we want to see resilient children and young people who can cope with life's adversities, find help when it's needed, and who go on themselves to create mentally healthy communities. Um, I, I love the fact that we're a young people, a children and young people's organisation, because the potential and the sheer energy and excitement is, is always really exciting and inspirational to work with. But also, young people are our tomorrow's community, tomorrow's society. And if we can get it right or better for young people, we will actually improve how society is tomorrow. And so we do this by championing children, young people's mental health and well-being across the UK. Um, and as I said, driven by our experience, we, that's what creates momentum for change. And I have to say, if you're talking about wanting to have policy change, the people who are the fantastic advocates are actually young people themselves. When we've done campaigning work, we have all the research and the statistics, you know, up your arm. But you actually put young people in front of politicians and they describe what's happened to them. And that's what makes them sit up and listen. And that has really been our experience. Uh, dating back, actually, from the uh, Mental Health um, Act uh, reform back in 2010. Was it before that? 2008, just before I started Young Minds. It was young people describing their experience to the select committee that made ministers go, we've got to change this. We can't have young people, we can't have children, young people being on adult wards. That's what brought that change in. So do not underestimate your power um, uh, in terms of being young people as well. So what do we do? As I said, we do a lot of influencing work, whether it's through the media, with politicians, with um, uh, whether it's in, locally in local areas, but we do that also with, with practical help. We know that this is tough. We know life is tough. We know that delivering services is really hard and lots of people are doing the best they can against what feels like a watershed, pushing them in the, in the opposite direction. 
Um, and so we work with and support children and young people, but also parents and families and also um, uh, professionals, practitioners. We do a lot of work um, in schools. We do a lot of work with commissioners um, and local areas and helping develop uh, local strategies. And so um, we work across the UK, though I have to say that with the changes in the NHS from 2010, it kind of swallowed us up. Um, and we have been very focused on England in the last few years, and now we're going, OK, enough, we now need to think more broadly, both internationally as well as the UK. So, as I said, we need you. And this is where I'm going to start, because I'll come back to this at the end as well. The best and most exciting thing that's happened is Future in Mind. Um, I don't know if you are aware of Future in Mind. I will explain it a bit more in a bit. Um, and there are local transformation plans, which are also the most exciting thing that is happening at the moment. So, and I will talk more about that. We need to keep raising awareness about offender mental health everywhere. It's only by keeping on, keeping on, keeping on that actually anything is going to change. And there is awareness and there is policy developing, but do you know it's a long way from policy into practice. And so that pressure has to be maintained. And we need you to help us do that. We need more, more um, resources. We need help about learning from practice, not just from research. We need practice to develop. We need to bridge that research into practice and then back again. Um, it can't just be in one direction. But that needs money. Um, we need to capture and disseminate what, what we're learning about practice. And that comes from the mistakes, not just from the good stuff. We need to be a bit more open about, you know what, this is really hard, and we didn't, that didn't work, so we're going to change it. We're going to do it differently next year, so that we can do things differently, that we do create learning organisations. Do you know what, we really don't, we really don't do that. And actually, it's not our fault, because the policy changes, the money changes, different government comes in, and everything's churned around again, and people are tired. We have to fight that. We have to keep that going at, at local level. And often it is at local level where the exciting things are happening. So we have to all be brave and honest. So that's my call to action from the beginning. So uh, we'll go back now to, well, what we're we talking about here. So I'm sure that this is familiar to you as well. This comes from a book called Young Minds with, from uh, Professor Bailey and uh, um, Professor Shooter. Uh, both uh, presents the Royal College of Psychiatry at different times, psychiatrists. But it's, we're, this is the, 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 the groundwork. What is our mental health? What's it made up of? It isn't any one element. It is what we're born with, but it is also our upbringing, the nurture. But it is also events. Stuff happens. Um, and we know that when those things happen, if other things aren't in place, if other support isn't in place, it can have a major impact on the development, the developing brain, the developing hardwiring hard in children and young people, and overall their mental health chances in life. Um, what's been a really good bone, bonus for us has been the development of brain science in the last 15 years. Um, it has really given credibility to what actually we've known um, about the impact of emotional nurturing on the development, development both of the brain, but also the hard wiring of what gets, gets set in place 
for your emotional health later on in life. And that is what is also particularly crucial, both these two elements, the nurture and events around uh, young offenders, or young people at risk of offending. So I want you to hold this in mind. I don't want to go into this in detail. I'm I'm guessing that you're familiar with risk and protective factors. Can I just check that? Yes, is that lots of nods around the room? Um, But I just want us to also, this is again the groundwork about with any young person, there is a whole set of risk factors that is going to increase their likelihood around mental health problems um, and indeed of offending, as well as um, a number of protective factors. And these are also crucial, and it is an approach that we take very strongly within Young Minds around recognising the, the environment, the, the context um, that that young person is living in. I'm sure these can be made available to you if you would like them. Um, but I don't want to go through these in, de- in detail because since I'm, I'm guessing that you're familiar. Is that okay? Yeah. So, what do we know? We know that 95% of young people aged 16 to 20 in youth offending institutions have at least one mental health disorder. We know that 45% of children who have mild to moderate conduct problems go on to commit half of all crime, with an estimated cost of £37 We know that 40% of young people have been been homeless in the six months before entering custody. And we also know the the connection between homelessness and mental health as well, mental health problems. We know that nearly 90% of young people in, in YOIs have been excluded from school. And we know that 43% of young people in prison have ADHD. Around the second point, uh, 45% of children. Yeah. Well, is that all crime committed by youth or all crime full stop? Very good point. I wouldn't like to say definitely because I don't know at the, off the top of my head. I believe that this is all crime of young, young people. Um, it, is, it is from the uh, Sainsbury Centre for Mental Health uh, Research so it can be checked, but I'm pretty sure it's of... It, I was looking at it again last night, and it actually did say in the, in, the, um, in the section that I was reading of all crime, but I find that a bit of a challenge, so it must be, of all ch- ch- must be children and young people, crime yeah. committed by children and young people. Um, in the last ten years, there has been a number of reviews and reports... Um, uh, we have Michael Marmot initially talk, you know, really focused on the social determinants of mental health, which was um, very powerful and very useful. But we've had the Bradley Report, we've had um, around information governance review, which is, has been very interesting. We've had the No Health Without Mental Health, the first mental health strategy which uh, Paul Burstow led back in 2011, also focused around um, the health of offend- mental health offenders. And the Harris Review, looking at uh, death in custody of, of young people um, as well, I think looking at the extreme end shows a very good spotlight on the overall experience of what's happening with young people in the criminal justice system. Uh, and then Future in Mind, which came out last March, um, following Norman Lamb's um, uh, mental health task force for, around children and young people's mental health, and which is now coming into effect, which we will um, cover a bit more. What's coming through, and I will also talk a bit more about Young Minds' own research that we carried out a couple of years ago with City University, but the messages coming through are pretty consistent. 
Um, and there, um, but it is how that translates into changing practice is the challenge. So again, the sorts of messages are coming through around the, uh, around the impact of the brain on behaviour. So from the uh, um, uh, British Psychological Society positioning paper, which came out last year, the, ver- the linkage there between uh, brain trauma um, uh, uh, or other <coughs> intellectual disabilities and um, around offending is significant. Um, gang members, what the connection here around the dualistic relationship about poor mental health and being drawn to gangs. And again, what do we know about the mental health of gang members? 90% will have antisocial uh, personality disorder. 86% will have conduct disorder. 59% have anxiety disorders. And so it goes on. Um, <clears throat> the, it is very clear, sorry, can you see, uh, the connections repeatedly around... Um, young people's mental health and what their behave and their behavior and where that behavior leads them you know there's a very clear trajectory um, i worked previously both with homeless young people for many years at center point and with young people at risk of offending and offenders and it was like you could just see this path going you know and and it's like you could almost predict what was going to happen uh, um, as time went on and school the connections between look, being a looked after young person school exclusions and offending and also homelessness and offending and mental health problems was like completely connected in and yet nobody was actually connecting up the dots and actually thinking what is it that's happening here that we can do differently and it is still happening um, and so here's um, more data around um, mental health and gangs and around uh, girls as well and about what happens here around, is again, behavioural problems, about there, there are signs, there are early signs and early signals um, of distress in all sorts of different ways which we aren't suitably picking up on in any way. Again, coming back to the Harris Review, as I mentioned earlier, um, who, um, uh, Lord Harris was looking at self-inflicted deaths in custody of 18 to 24-year-olds over a particular period of time, 2007 to 2013. Um, and what's interesting about this is the government response, which came out in, in December, just before, just before Christmas. Again, I don't want to go through this in, in detail, but it's just painting a picture really well, I think, each one of these things around what he found with these young, these young people, overwhelmingly young men, um, who have chaotic lives, have histories of abuse and exposure to violence, and whilst in prison are not engaged in purposeful activity. Um, that they don't have, that norms themselves don't have a proper means of assessing whether sufficient care is, is being given to young people who are vulnerable. And also the, the importance of... Um, the caring adult, adult role model, which comes through in all sorts of different research about young people's need for um, attachment and, and positive role models and, um, and care. Um, the gap between healthcare services um, uh, in prison and in the community and also workforce um, needs around being aware and being trained Uh, We were um, asked by the prison service to do some training a long time ago, 10 years ago, um, uh, around competencies. Because then prison officers were saying, 
We don't know. We don't know what we're looking at in terms of the behaviour of young people here in the in the um, in in custody and in the in prison. We don't know if they're swinging the lead or if it's real. We don't know if what we're seeing is them being a bit fed up or actually really serious depression. Um, we don't know if they're just acting out or actually if this is distressed behaviour and this is the only way they know they know how to behave. They're at a complete loss. Um, and we have to remember that young people have agency. You know, they, they, if they think that by behaving in a certain way it's going to get them uh, something that is going to improve their lot, they will, of course, we, we all will. And it was very interesting there that it was actually about competencies of those, of those staff and increasing their confidence as well through that. It wasn't about they aren't good enough, that they wanted to do a good job but didn't feel able to. So the, the whole workforce training, and we, we hear this again and again with teachers, exactly the same issues. Um, we don't want to make things worse. We don't know, you know, is this our job or is it should be somebody else's job? What, where do we stop? Where do we say, no, this, you need to come in now and help us. We need a specialist. And what is it that we can do? So I think workforce training is a really critical issue. And again, uh, Lord Harris, uh, one of the very strong things that comes through in that report is, why are these young people in custody in the first place? You look at their life history, and something should have been done years ago to help this young person. What we're seeing is a life of chaos and distress, and nobody has done anything. Is it any surprise that, that we are where we are with this young person? That there were signs as well early on about the distress that this young person was feeling before they ever got to the point of actually taking their own lives. And that those, all those opportunities were missed along the way. And that this isn't just about criminal justice and the youth justice system. This is actually about all parts of government working across and working better. And of course, that is the most difficult thing you can possibly ask for. Um, we're all bad at uh, working in our silos because it's very complicated to work across and to work with somebody who works in a different way. When you're talking about government departments, it like becomes this enormous inertia that's within the system. But actually, he's right. It is about education. It is about social care. It is about community services. It is about mental health services and CAMs. But it is also about the criminal justice system. And finally, we are talking about young people. And young people in development are vulnerable in themselves in terms of the impact of what happens to them is dramatic and different from adults. One of the things he raised was just removing a young person from home uh, and taking them away from all of their local community and contacts is drastic for a young person and has all sorts of impacts upon their own emotional well-being and mental health, which doesn't get recognised. And that will have an impact on their behaviour. Um, it will have an impact, a longer-term impact on, on their well-being and on their mental health. We need to understand that this actually has a neurological impact. It isn't just, they're a bit sad at the minute. This has a much longer-term and deeper impact on, the, on a developing person. So, Young Minds um, was approached by the Barrow Cadbury Trust, who um, support transition to adulthood around offending in that particular age between 18 and 24. That's, the, uh, that's what they're interested in, because this is a period 
where young people are particularly vulnerable and where most of our systems completely collapse because you're moving from children's services to adult services, whether that's in education, whether that's in from CAMS to AMS, whether that's in uh, the justice system, whether that's social care, you know, if you looked after children, get, you know, shifted, although things have slightly changed on that. Um, and... Uh, what is it that's actually happening? So that transition they're interested in, but around mental health. And so we carried out a piece of research absolutely focusing on relationships um, and what, what actually is the detail of what's going on, rather than numbers. It was what is it systematically that's happening to young people that we can learn from. There were really five critical issues that came out of that. One was around uh, the need for consistency of relationships for young people, about building trust and empathy. I know this seems really obvious, you know, and I, sometimes I sort of pinch myself because a lot of things seem to be really quite obvious and quite common sense, but we don't do it. Um, what we know that happens with that uh, this research came out, and we called it Same Old because uh, a number of us at Young Minds, you know, old in the tooth now, been working with young offenders or young people at, at risk of offending for a long time. And it's like, I can't quite believe that the same things are the case now as when I was first working in this field, a scary number of years ago. Um, it's like, surely we've learned and, and moved on and changed things. And actually, sadly, we haven't, or it doesn't seem to be the case. Um, so, young people, you... Start building a relationship with a young person, and that it, funding stops, jobs change, they get a new job, uh, the, organi the organisation reorganises their structure, it changes. <coughs> For that young person who's had chaos, they are not going to then bond with the next person who comes. It's like, well, how long are you going to be here? Um, uh, and why should I? Why would I, why would I trust you? And unless you have that trusting relationship, actually, do you know what? Nothing's going to happen. Um, so how do we get over that one? How do, how do we do something about that? Because actually, if you are going to make change in somebody's life, we all know you need to, that is the core for anything else to happen. So that's number one. Greater knowledge and skills for identification and awareness of mental health issues, which I just talked about. The lack of coordination and collaboration between services. So not only is it about changing in terms of build, developing trust, but across the piece, you have a young person who um, goes to their GP, uh, having come out of, of custody, uh, they have a mental health problem, the GP goes, you're under that psychiatrist, I can't do anything, I'll put you on the list. So they, get, they go away, they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, um, and then they, they might have a support worker, um, and the support worker goes, oh, right, okay, well, you're doing that, your, weight, your, your mental health's been so sorted out by that person, so I won't do anything about that because that's over there. Um, and their benefits is over here being dealt with slightly differently. All these services not talking to each other. Uh, bits of information held by different people in different places. What came through really strongly in this research was that the only people who actually sat with them and kind of went with them and advocated on their behalf was in the voluntary sector because they felt they had... That was their job. That was their job to do that. Um, that was their job to stick by them and try and make all these other services work. Our statutory services 
overwhelmed as they are, tend to go, no, this is my job, and that's not my job, that I'm here. Um, information sharing, I've got confidentiality issues, I can't, I can't tell you that. The young people were going, I don't care, you know, tell them. I'm telling my story again and again and again. Why can't they just, why can't these professionals just talk to each other and just tell them? Um, I don't know the impact of these drugs on, my, on me. They're not telling me, you know, how often or what, what I might have to manage alongside it. Um, one young person who ended up overdosing because they weren't, they weren't kind of engaged with what they, their, how they should be taking these, this medication. Think, oh, it's going to make me better, I'll have more. Young people, because they weren't seeing, um, getting the kind of coordinated care, self-medicating with drugs and, and alcohol as a way of just coping and feeling a bit better, because they were scared about, how they, how they, about their own mental state. So we actually make things worse all the time, so easily. Um, so this comes on to this, who holds the ring? It's never very clear who it is who actually should be saying, OK, you're mine. Right, you do that, you do that, and you do that. Have you done that? Have you done that? Nobody does that for young people coming out of custody. There isn't a clear um, kind of person around their mental health care who has got that responsibility, not just to see them once every three months and just check that they're taking the medication, but to actually ensure that the different elements are being chased up, are happening. And you know how good we are about not, not following up on things. Again, everyone's busy. So what's happening around that, that pathway management? Who is it who, who should be doing that? And the other bit was just about access to accurate information for everyone. The young people didn't know what the system was, or who they should be seeing, when they should be seeing them, who they saw for what... If they were on drugs, whether what what the impact those drugs might be on them, what combination it might be, and also that the treatment, the mental health treatment, tends to focus on medication and not on um, any other kind of either talking therapy <coughs> or other kind of support. And again, with vulnerable young people, we also know that that isn't going to be enough. We need both elements, um, but they didn't know that either. So. Um, those are really critical issues, and it's about, this is much more about the practical human delivery of service and the human relationships, rather than necessarily that it is about the systems too, but it's about how those systems work in practice. So the conclusions from that uh, research was that systems trying to offer effective help can in fact exacerbate already problematic circumstances. Too often the result for young people is increased cynicism, further loss of self-esteem, motivation, confidence and basic skills. For the state it can mean spiralling costs of welfare dependence, health problems, policing and custodial sentences, as well as the loss of an active working citizen. We were a bit fed up when we came to the end of that research. Um, um, so, is it all bad? Is this, is this the situation? It isn't. And you always have to be optimistic and hopeful. But what actually is happening? So, <coughs> it always looks terribly complicated to start with, but it isn't. I'm going to just show you what's going on. And for those of you in uh, mental health service, you'll, be, you'll know this so well. But why is it all so hard for young people in general <coughs> accessing, accessing CAMS? But it's just made ten times harder for, for young offenders. So, this is, the, this is CAMS. 
Uh, and I would say cans from as it was maybe last September. Things are beginning to shift. So we have universal services here, young people with mental health or emotional needs. What should happen is, as mental health problems may, may emerge, that they're able to access universal services out in the community. Should they need something a bit, a bit more structured, that they're able to access what is known as Tier 2 services. So these are um, the when you haven't got necessarily a diagnosable mental health disorder. Um, often these are sorts of things like youth counselling, um, they might be all sorts of other things as well. There are um, things like, uh, for instance, one you know, it might be anger management, it might be group work. Uh, they often call step-up, step-down services, generally in the, in the local community. What's happening? Actually, Tier 2 services have been decimated. Local authority, these, are, these are the services have been generally funded by local authorities, and uh, with the local authority cuts from since 2010, they have practically disappeared. Um, and so the young people wanting to access services are being rejected. There isn't anything. And they come back out into universal services. What should happen, again, is those young people who have access to this either then are, are get what they need and are, are fine, and they're, they're, they're okay. Or if they need further help, they have access to specialist CAMs, which is what we traditionally know as, as CAMs, which then tends to be much more pathway-orientated there um, and is around more about diagnosed uh, mental health problems. Um, and you get, you get assessed, you might get assessed a few times, um, but you are able to access the care you need uh, for, for the period of time that you need. And then from that, you come out of those, those services. You may then have stepped down services. You may come back out into, into the community and not need further help. Should you need further help, or should it be a much more serious um, uh, mental health problem, mental illness, there is inpatient care, crisis care, urgent care teams. Um, so either inpatient care in a, in a clinic, hospital, or um, urgent care teams, crisis teams locally in the community. And again, you should be able to get what you need and you come back out of that service often getting some kind of ongoing um, step, step up, step down services. What's happening? You are having access to this service. You come back out. What happens? Young people become sicker. Um, uh, because they aren't able to access either this service or indeed this service. Waiting lists for Tier 3 for specialist care has gone up, and because of Tier 2 services being dis decimated, the threshold, the way that CAMS has coped, is by saying, OK, you actually have to be this ill now, rather than this ill, before we're able to offer you a service. And we've heard all sorts of awful stories of young people being told, sorry, your BMI isn't low enough yet. Um, you know, uh, so we, we can't offer you any help. And so we've got this very weird um, uh, disincentives for getting better. Uh, what we're creating are, in, are incentives for getting worse to in order to get any help at all. And indeed, that has been what has been happening. And, and CAMs have been absolutely um, stressed, completely stressed, uh, because what they are then dealing with is much more complex cases, much greater need, um, and uh, so are then also restricting their services even more. So we're in this kind of spiral. 
And the last element, and then what's happening is often young people ha- aren't even getting tier, tier 3 services, back out again, getting iller, and the first time they get care is going into inpatient care because they have become a crisis point. Um, uh, inpatient care has also been at crisis point, uh, and you will have heard in the news all sorts of things around young people being sent over the, all over the country, and we, now, and we know the impact that has about being cut off from your community and friendship networks and support networks. So it's a system under huge amounts of stress. So then when you have young people who are also going into custody, coming back out of custody, so how they are tracked and supported within this system is an impossibility. Um, You have a system already under uh, huge pressure. And when you have young people who aren't... Um, necessarily in your area. One of the other things is, well, who has responsibility? Who is it who should be making sure, linking that young person back into the services locally? Um, do they then have to go, to, the, to go through the whole system of referral all over again, even though they may have been seen by CANS before they went into custody, go, in, go, go into prison, come back out and have to start all over again? And we're seeing waiting, uh, waiting lists of, you know, Six months is fairly normal, um, can be much longer, can be up to a year. And you're talking about a young person who's coming out of prison who's already very vulnerable. You're talking about a very <coughs> serious situation that you're setting up. Was this, is this really familiar to you? Is it, um, yeah. So, um, in uh, last March, uh, after work by Norman Lamb, uh, who was then care minister, um, and set up the uh, task force for children and young people's mental health. Um, and the report that came out of it was Future in Mind, which had 49 proposals. Um, uh, there was, I co-chaired the work, the task group on vulnerable young people. And uh, one of those groups, of course, is uh, young offenders. One of the things that we had big debates in this t- uh, task group about uh, Vulnerability, because everyone was chipping in their, their particular vulnerable group that they wanted to, uh, to fight for. Uh, and kind of, hang on a minute, if we do this, we're going to have a list, you know, from the floor to the ceiling of young people with different vulnerabilities. What is it? What's the common denominator here? What's underneath um, that all of these young people have, are experiencing that we could actually do something about because we can't do something about every, every single particular group um, and also we are very good at splitting young people up into you know, fragmenting them into different needs um, we're talking about a whole young person what is it about um, their experiences of vulnerability that is impacting on their mental health that we can actually do something about and what um, we did come to agreement with, and that's why I was really interested in the, in the title of this conference, was about the experience of trauma, both in early years and by... So it could be a, a, a thing that happens. Uh, bereavement is often... Can, of, a, of a key um, person can often be one of those things. Or it might be cumulative over a period of time through uh, an exposure through childhood and adolescence. This is quite contentious, this um, idea, and uh, some people really poo-pooed it. And so we're not talking about trauma as in uh, necessarily PTSD. We're talking about trauma as having an impact, an absolute concrete impact on that person, that child's um, development, 
and their neurological and emotional development. So a much broader sense and uh, terminology. The traumatic impact of violence, abuse, loss is not always taken into account nor reflected in the case management or therapy. So an example here is about serious behaviour issues being referred for anger management rather than therapy for trauma and loss. One of the things that has come through really loud and clear is that young people, so if we take looked after young people as a kind of category, if you like, who they are, have one of the highest incidences of mental health problems, yet they don't get access to services. And it was like, one of the, we were going, well, why is this? What's going on here? Um, and what, where we got to is that what those young people are presenting to CAMS is not a classic mental health disorder. So they can't be put into a clear pathway for care. What they're coming is with a complexity of issues, and come, which is coming from their experiences, um, and just through their experience of, of family breakdown and loss, it can be enough. But because that isn't understood in that way, they are being looked at more, more through a more medical lens, those, that's being lost and they're being seen as, oh no, there's nothing we can do for you. But actually there's lots that could be done. It just needs a different type of questioning and finding out and, and, and discovery. Um, and because actually, if we can get in there early, before the mental health disorders do develop, we actually can, can do much more for that young person and much more for their lives and in terms of outcomes have a much greater impact. So this, I think, is a really important part where, where we're at in terms of CAMS. And what's interesting is that the Home Office, in the, their response to Harris and in response to Future in Mind, have also endorsed this and also endorsed about, uh, about asking these questions, in, again, around gangs in particular. And the other part, I think, that we should uh, want to really focus on is around sharing information because this is so often such an enormous block in our, in our care for young people, for everybody, but in particular around young people and mental health. And um, the Caldicott Review, number two, has absolutely focused on this, and that we must review and change our paranoia around sharing information and, uh, uh, in the medical profession. And our whole approach to data protection it can be can be can be different. We are that there is a paranoia around this, rather than a healthy use of respecting people's confidentiality when when wanted and when when necessary. Um, and that it is important to share information. Of course, respecting safeguards. Of course, respecting confidentiality appropriately, but doing that appropriately. But it is a very challenging. So. I don't want to go on about this, where we've, we've covered this already, uh, but, about, but for young offenders, all these aspects really, really build up to actually creating a worse situation and more offending. We've talked about some of these recommendations. I don't want to, I want to have time for, for discussion. So, um, and this is what we came, through, came out with in, uh, from our same old report, uh, around, there actually is some good policy. There's some good policy and good strategy. Let's bloom and well implement it. Training we know about, talked about. 
There is something about a senior clinician's role um, where lots of people are very unconfident and we have got some really excellent clinicians and can we not bridge this better? Can they not be providing advice and leadership around, uh, around care management and uh, building confidence and skills within the more generic workforce? Can we not have somebody who actually does hold the ring, please? Um, can we not also make sure our commissioning works much better so that we are working across departments locally? And can we not do something about access to, to services and information? And we were then talking about a single point of access. What's really exciting uh, is that in Future in Mind, of the recommendations that came through, a lot of these actually have been picked up, not because of us, but because everybody, it's common sense, and this is actually, this is a, Future in Mind was a massive workforce, a, a task group. I think there was about 40 people in it. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a, you know, a small select group. Um, and uh, there, was real, there was a real consensus about what we need to do, which is very exciting. And it's the first time I've experienced it in, uh, in this field. <coughs> Um, and there were some specific elements as well around uh, young offenders. So the transition times was really recognised as being we have really got to do something about this. Integrated working with um, a brown, between mental health services and youth justice assessments really needs to uh, tie up much more strongly. Um, I was talking to the magistrates last year and they were also saying... What do we do? We're having so many young people coming in with very clear mental health problems. But if we do um, a community order, then actually there aren't the services there to, uh, to deliver them. So then what happens? Actually, maybe going in, having some time in prison would be a much safer option than just leaving them back out in the community with nothing. So it's that we've actually got to tie this up much better. A designated lead professional to, act, to coordinate the care and interagency working around a young person in the youth justice system, which could be the um, CARO that is now talked about. And these have all been supported in the government response. Um, these, these have all been supported, which is great. The single point of access is coming through, and now a number of CAMs are introducing a single point of access and a triage system as being an efficient way of, uh, of speeding up access and actually helping um, young people get the help they need much more quickly. Um, and the, uh, what was talked about in Future in Mind is as the liaison mental health model. And what this picks up here on is this, this role of the senior clinician and how there can be somebody locally who others can turn to for some advice and help. And like, should this person be referred to CANS? What should we be doing here? That there is huge amounts of expertise sitting in some clinics which is not accessible to others. And we need to open that up and make, it, make, make those people much more available. And there are good models of practice where this is happening. So it's not that it's impossible. Uh, more accessible and engaging settings, again, uh, from our work with Seymold. And what, we, again, we know is that young people find clinics a bit intimidating. Um, and they find G GP surgeries also can be quite intimidating. Let's put services where, they're, where, they're, where young people will go and also where they feel comfortable. Um, and I think the uh, Youth Information Advice Centres are a really good role model for these, uh, which are supported by Youth Access. So there, there are um, youth centres, if you like, but which provide housing support, benefits advice, employment advice, all sorts of things, as well as um, 
often having a nurse on site, providing youth counselling, <coughs> linking into, into CANS. And these have been now supported much more through um, the local CCGs. And that is the really good news. And there again, there are some lots now of models across the country where they are developing and becoming much more closely tied into the local CAN service. And finally, about multidisciplinary, multi-agency pathways. And this is the local transformation. This is embodied in the local transformation plans. So every local area must have their local plan about how they're going to address and meet the needs, the mental health needs of the local young people, and what the role is of schools, local authorities, uh, uh, youth justice, um, as well as mental health services. So this, and this is where the additional money, so the 1.25 billion that has been agreed um, and has started to be spent, it's, it, it, the, the local transformation plans is the passport. And they also, which is great news for for, for us, is that the local areas have to give a financial account of that funds back to NHS England each year. So we can, it's, for us, it gives us an opportunity to monitor that this is actually being delivered because the trouble with fund money is it kind of evaporates. You know, we're very good doing block contracts. And so actually identifying where that money is going has been incredibly hard in the past. So I've just talked about this, so I won't, go, I won't say that again. I've actually covered that one. Um, and this one was about um, young people and about um, the, the example I gave around when uh, young people needing to have the consistency of contact. And this is from a professional who said, you know, I remember more than one young person asking me, so how long are you going to be here for? Young people do want to access support, but the trust is a massive, massive issue. Um, and if they open up and trust someone and they, and they disappear, they become mistrusting and, they don't, and they're not going to actually do any work. And for us as professionals, that's really quite difficult. So what we need to do is do things differently. Reorientate services and programmes. Stop the problem developing. Early on is absolutely the key. Look at the individual in their context. Um, look at the social and community factors tackle those other determinants so you're working with a whole young person not just a thing you're thinking about what is it that's going on here not just is there a diagnosable mental health problem and also let's just keep being good about measuring out because let's look at the practice what's the outcomes of this practice is it working if it's not working what well, how do we change it let's do it better um Key things I'm just going to bang on about. Early intervention, the trusted adult, building resilience. Let's think about all of those aspects about how this young person is going to cope in the, in the, in the future and increase the workforce depend, um, uh, skills. And there are some really good um, examples of practice. So Mac UK, are you aware of Mac UK? Um, founded uh, eight years ago uh, by a psychologist but at working with gangs on the street, going out to where, where young people are. Really interesting model, really exciting way about delivering services. Um, and, and it's the, and the staff, you know, working in, in, uh, in risky ways, well, for, for normal practice risky ways, but actually then really successfully engaging with young people, working gangs. They focus on, on gangs and um, young people on, on streets. AMBIT, the Adolescent Mentalisation Based Integrative Treatment. I'm sorry, I have a real thing about this. This is a fantastic programme, but 
ambit. Adolescent mentalisation-based integrity treatment. What's a young person going to think when they're being told that's the kind of service they're getting? Um, Anna Fry's fantastic um, organisation and doing, and this is a fantastic model. But please, can we just call these sensible things? Um, uh, the, the, I have a, uh, it is my thing about the mystification that we are very keen on doing. Um, the IAC, so the zone is one of the examples of the youth information advice and counselling centres. Um, youth Access is the, uh, is the umbrella organisation. Do look at them, some fantastic organisations. Uh, the zone is one of them. Uh, GPs are now coming out and being uh, located and co-located with those. It's, it's some really good stuff. And finally, Red Thread, that are King's Youth Violence Project, and they are working in accident and emergency, and so picking up when young people, because that's often where young people first hit, uh, not hit, the where they hit up in terms of accessing a service, uh, especially when connected around violence. Um, so do do look at those uh, if you um, uh, if you're interested. And I'm just coming back to this again about what you can do. And what I'd like to focus on is the last point in this one. Um, we are picking up on the work from the uh, vulnerable um, working group. Um, and uh, we're very interested around this trauma-focused care. We are being approached now. Suddenly, everyone's interested in children and young people's mental health, which is great. But it does mean that everyone's fighting from their particular corner. So here we go again, fragmenting young people, um, talking about you know, looked-after children, adopted children, young offenders, uh, sexual abuse, um, uh, poverty. And all of those things are right and important. We don't, want to, we don't want to take away from any of that. But we do also need to look at that young person as a whole and what's going on underneath. Um, and so uh, we are doing a piece of uh, literature, literature review at the moment um, uh, to then think about and holding a summit with practitioners because we think that's where the answer is going to lie in actually making things happen and change um, around how do we do this? How do we bring these elements together? And what it, where are some good practice and what can we learn and what does this mean about doing it um, you know, actually on the ground? Uh, so we will be um, holding a, a bit of a, a launch of it and discussion in uh, the spring, late spring, with a summit in autumn, um, and it would be great for if you were interested in that, because, again, unless we keep a focus on this, it will slip away. And that's why we're, we're picking this up, because otherwise everyone's going to fight for their particular cause, and there's nothing wrong in that, but we do need to... We need to work holistically. We need to work together. We need to see young people as whole people as well. And we also run some training, uh, if, you, if anybody is interested... And finally, that's, uh, that's us. So thank you all very much. <laughs>